This week we are going to look at the second series of five oracles, and I always have to be careful how I say that to make sure I'm saying it clearly, because chapters um, 13 all the way to 27 have three series of oracles, and each series has five. Over the last two weeks, we looked at first the very first oracle, and we looked at just the first one because it was such a long introduction just to get get our feet under us on where all these oracles are going, and then we looked at the last four of that first series last week. And this week we're going to look, be looking at the second series, the whole series, all five oracles in it. This second series, compared to the first one, is much shorter. But unfortunately, it is also much more complicated. In this series of oracles, it is hard to tell exactly what Isaiah is saying at times. It is hard to tell exactly what time period he is talking about. I'm going to argue, though, through through these chapters and every oracle, I'm going to argue that there was a historical setting, and it would have been understood in his time. But we will also see that there are layers to each oracle, and it shouldn't surprise us that in the wording, we see glimpses into the future as well. In the in this series especially, but also in the next one, even more so, the near future, the present, the kind of near future, and the end of days, they all start blending together. And the wording seems to apply strangely to both times in Isaiah's day and times later than Isaiah's day. And then also even as you read the book of Revelation, and you'll find similar wording there from some of these oracles even, and we'll get there. You see how all of the, all of the events from now till the very end, they all start being blended together. And that's where a lot of the complications come in. Almost every commentator that I read, and these are men who are much smarter and have much more time than I do to be researching into all of these oracles. Almost every commentator I read had a different opinion about how to take the details of these chapters. And this, this in part, um, in large part, was due to the fact that there are many complications in the Hebrew, in these oracles. And there are also many different historical periods that seem to match what these words are saying. And then also, because each oracle does not have a timestamp, we don't know exactly when all of these oracles were given. So because of all of this, I am going to purposefully try to help us focus more on the big picture. I will have to dive into the weeds at times, but I am purposely trying to make sure that we don't get lost in them. I did a few times while I was studying, and I had to reel myself back and start looking at the big picture and say, okay, of all these commentators and all the different things that they're saying, what's the point? What is trying to be communicated through the text? So my goal today is hopefully to not just lose everybody in the complications, but to hopefully help us see that there is a point being communicated. And that's actually why also that I am going to talk about all five of these at once. Each series of oracles actually has a main point that develops through the series of oracles. And then what I've also been saving for next week is that the series of five each, also each of the five, if you you track them through the three series, the first oracle and the first one, the second one, the third one, and the second oracle and the first one, second one, and third one, they all build. So not only does each series have a message within the series, but then if you track the five individual types of oracles through the series of three, you're going to get five different developing messages as well. I haven't talked about that yet because it's going to be easier to talk about that next week when we've looked at all three of them. So um, again, there's a reason I'm taking all five of these at once. So with that, with all of that being said, let's look to the first oracle in the second series, which begins in chapter 21. This first oracle 
you'll see in the, the header of most Bibles, fallen, fallen is Babylon. And that comes from later in the oracle, that comes from verse 9, when the watchman answers, fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all the carved images of her gods, he has shattered, he being God, he has shattered to the ground. And we see in the title of this oracle, it says, the oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea. So just with the header and just with the introduction to the oracle, we have a bunch of complications that have just been introduced. So again, I'm going to have to dig into the weeds once in a while here as we're talking about stuff. So the oracle concerns the fall of Babylon, but the question that every commentator has to grapple with is which fall? And why is it called the desert of the sea and not just Babylon? Like, why aren't we more straightforward here? Babylon had successfully led two rebellions and become independent from the Assyrian Empire during two different periods. And both of these two periods actually cover the majority of the years that this oracle could have been given. Um, Because this this oracle, and, and honestly this entire series of oracles, was likely given between the time that Hezekiah first started to rule by himself um, and that was about 716 um, at the death of Ahaz. And that was after the fall of the northern tribes. And then the end date of most of these oracles, and we'll, we'll see why as we work through, but the, most of these oracles would have been given by 701, which was the siege of Assyria against Jerusalem. So you have about a 15-year period that most of these oracles would have been given. And during the 15-year period, there were actually two different times when Babylon had become independent of Assyria. But both of these times of independence ended with a defeat and subjugation, again, by Assyria. This happened in 710 and then also in 702. And then this process was repeated again later with another independent period followed by another defeat in 689. And then finally, Babylon overthrew Assyria in 609, but then they themselves were overthrown by the Medo-Persian Empire, who, by the way, were their actual former allies, and we'll get there in a minute. Um, they were overthrown by the Medo-Persian Empire just 70 years later in 539. So again, which fall of Babylon are we talking about? Being that Babylon led two successful, though very temporary, rebellions during this time, And then also based on the wording in these verses, I think it is reasonable to see that this oracle is a warning from God through Isaiah to Hezekiah, warning him against an alliance with Babylon. And this is um, due to the fact, as we see in the wording of the oracle, he's basically warning him that you may look to them because they have been able to give times of independence and victory, but these victories are always short-lived. Babylon is fallen. And I think that the is fallen is actually kind of like a perfect sense in that like it continues to fall. Every time they have independence, they fail. And then even when they become their own empire, their empire won't even last nearly as long as the Assyrian empire is lasting. So Babylon is fallen. Where you're looking to is not going to bring you any hope. This is also likely why the oracle is called the wilderness of the sea. And to get the irony going on here, you have to know a little bit of geography. Babylon was nicknamed the Sea Land because of the southern portion's marshland where the Tigris and Euphrates River go into the Persian Gulf. So Isaiah is taking this nickname Sea Land, which they kind of have like championed, of like it's a source of water, they're, they're a good lush land. And he says this Sea Land that you're looking to is actually a wilderness of the sea. So he's purposely playing on the words and saying, this source of hope that you're looking to is actually a wilderness or a desert. There is no hope there. It is a dried up sea. 
So there's a purposeful irony here with the name of Babylon. Isaiah is telling Hezekiah then that putting trust in Babylon is allying yourself with destruction. In fact, putting yourself in foreign powers rather than in God is to set yourself up for betrayal and destruction. Isaiah sees in verse 1, we start, in the, start the oracle here. In the oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea, as whirlwinds in the Negev sweep on, it comes from the wilderness, from a terrible land. So in verse 1, Isaiah sees, he sees whirlwinds, which um, represent destruction, coming from a terrible land. And that's about where the clarity stops, because after that it starts to get really complicated really fast. So Isaiah sees in one that destruction is coming, but starting in verse 2, we don't know exactly where the destruction is coming from or what exactly is going on, because the wording becomes unclear as we see, and I'm going to argue that the future, that the present and the future all start being blended together. The words in the Hebrew are often very ambiguous or unclear, and it also isn't always clear who is the speaker of the different parts of the oracle. Because you're going to see as you follow through the wording that there are different speaking times that are happening, and it's usually just um, introduced and said without introduction of who is saying it. So it is often an interpretive choice to choose who is saying the words of the different parts of the oracle. And then based on who you choose is saying the words changes how you understand the context of what is being said. There seem to be two primary ways to read this oracle. And they both fit well with different periods of history. The first way to read this oracle would concern more near-term events and would likely refer to the coming defeat of Babylon by Assyria either in 710 or 702. Because again, both of these times are in this time period when Isaiah is pleading with Hezekiah to not abandon God and form this alliance that he knows he's not supposed to do. And in this reading, verses 1 through 4, you would have the traitor or destroyer who is mentioned in verse 2. We read, a stern vision has told me a traitor betrays and a destroyer destroys. That traitor destroyer would be Assyria. And then you have, go up Elam, lay siege Omedia, all the signs she, being Assyria, um, Elam and Media are called to arms against Assyria. And this, we know from both of these time periods, they were both part of the alliance with Babylon. So in this reading, again, the destroyer or traitor of verse 2 would be Assyria, and then Elam and Media are called to defend Babylon against Assyria. And we'll see that in a little bit. Um, Or possibly to join in the alliance that Babylon is forming against Assyria. And as we read here, it says, Go up, Elam, lay siege, Media. And then immediately it's, Therefore my loins are filled with anguish. Pangs have seized me like the pangs of a woman in labor. I am bowed down so that I cannot hear. I am dismayed so I cannot see. Isaiah is horrified by the sight of what he knows is coming. And it says in 4, My heart staggers. Horror has appalled me. The twilight I longed for. Twilight representing like a time of rest and relief. The end of the day when one would anticipate having rest. The twilight I long for has been turned for me into trembling. There is no rest. There is just trembling. Or this could be read as the rest that I long for is coming, but how it's coming is making me tremble in the actual sight of what it takes to make it happen. So again, there are so many different ways to read what's going on here. And then in five, they prepare the table, they spread the rugs, they eat, they drink. And then this voice cries out, Arise, O princess, O princes, oil the shield. In other words, prepare for battle. And again, there's a choice that you have to make here. 
um, because as they're preparing the table, they're spreading the rugs. Basically, they're, they're preparing this feast and they're partying. And then there's this call that comes out, prepare for battle. So is this the people who are preparing the party that are calling for battle, or is this a voice calling to the people who are partying and don't know of the coming destruction, telling them to prepare for battle? That is a choice you have to make. And in, and in this reading where you have that the traitor is Assyria and that this alliance is being formed against Assyria, in this reading, what would happen is that these, these allies against Assyria are feasting and drinking and calling their princes to prepare for battle. And they are partying unaware of the destruction that they are about to face. For through the imagery of the watchman in the next few verses, we see that Babylon, ending in verse 9, fallen, fallen is Babylon. And what Isaiah is told of this coming destruction and shown by the Lord, he tells to the threshed and winnowed people, as we see in verse 10, O my threshed and winnowed one, what I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I announced to you. So in this reading, basically what's going on is you have Assyria is a traitor and a cause of oppression. She is a destroyer. You have this alliance that is called, they're partying, and they're, they're basically celebrating because they're, they're about to go to arms and they're about to fight Assyria, but they don't realize they are about to actually be destroyed. And then Isaiah is telling the people of Jerusalem who are crushed and winnowed, basically agri- agricultural food gathering ways of saying crushed and beaten down people, that this hope that you thought you had, I, I, I have to break it to you. This is not going to work. So that is one way of reading the oracle. Um, the second way to read it would actually concern the future destruction of Babylon by the Medo and Persian Empire, who again were her former a- allies which is why the first reading has them allying with Babylon. So in this reading, in verses 1 through 4, the traitor or destroyer is Babylon, who sought allegiances with Judah during Hezekiah's time, but then later turned or traded or became a traitor against Jerusalem and destroyed and exiled Judah. And then in this reading, go up Elam and lay siege on Media. Elam is in the area of Persia, so the Persian and Me- Persian Medo Empire Elam and Media, they would be the ones that attack and overthrow Babylon. Isaiah sees this coming destruction and is appalled at the scene, which is where you have that reaction in those next couple verses. He longs for the twilight or the end of the Babylonian oppression and exile of the people, but the sight of it actually happening before him causes him to tremble. And then kind of a side note here. As Babylon's former allies, Medo and Persia could also potentially be the traitor and the destroyer. And because of the fact that like that fits so many different historical readings, I think the traitor-destroyer things is more just a general truth that nations tend to turn on each other, which is, if you just know anything about history, you know that's completely true. Um, and then in verses 5 through 9 in this reading, the they who are partying, they prepare the table, they spread the rungs, they eat and they drink. This would refer to Babylon eating and drinking and partying, unaware of the destruction about to come from the Medes and the Persians. And then a call to arms is called to them. So like basically somebody off watching the scene calls them, say, prepare for battle, but it's too late. For you read in the next few verses in the words of the watchman that Babylon has fallen. And this reading, by the way, sounds strikingly similar to the account of the sudden surprise fall of Babylon that we read in Daniel 5, where they are partying. They are, in fact, partying with the vessels of the temple. And then Daniel sees the writing on the wall, and their sudden destruction comes. So again, you see how both readings fit very well with two different periods of history. And I think that's completely on purpose. 
Because the next two oracles seem to work together with this one, I think the group of three um, is meant to be primarily and like at the moment to deal with present circumstances, especially because the end of this group of three that we're going to talk about ends with a near-term fulfillment. I think that these are messages that would have been understood in Hezekiah's day. But I think it shouldn't surprise us at all that we also find that the wording matches very well later fulfillments and future fulfillments, this one about the fall of Babylon. Because again, in the second and third series of oracles, it all starts blending together. And you start to see that, I mean, this applies to multiple periods of history. And that's kind of the point. And especially as we move through these oracles, I'm going to show that the point being made is more a general truth. But because God is God, he's also able to word things in a way that actually lines up with history as he is teaching a general truth. So then the second oracle is the oracle of Duma. And this one starts in verse 11 and is very short, just um, verses 11 through 12. And this oracle is the oracle concerning Duma. One calling to me from Seir, watchman, what time of the night? Watchman, what time of the night? The watchman says morning comes and also the night. If you will inquire, inquire, come back again. So the second oracle flows right from the unclearness, the ambiguity, and the multiple fulfillments that apply to the first one flow right into this one, beginning with the title itself again. The title itself is a bit puzzling and very likely purposefully has multiple meanings. For Duma was the name of one of the sons of Ishmael and was the name of an oasis town in north-central Arabia. The word, though, also means silence and sounds a lot like the word for Edom in Hebrew. So there's likely potentially two, maybe even three, plays on wording here in choosing this word, Duma. And then that seer is mentioned in the very next line. It says, one is calling me from seer. Seer is in Edom. Um, so that this is mentioned shows that this has something to do with Edom. But then that the call is coming from Edom seems to indicate that Edom is asking about somewhere else asking very likely about their fate as it relates to the fate of something that is going on. Duma, a place in northern Arabia, stood at an intersection of trade routes, with the western route going through Edom. The fate of Duma, then, would be of great concern to Edom, both for trade and communication with those to the east, especially since this was the main route of communication between Edom and Babylon as they sought to form alliances. So Edom has a lot of stake in what's happening in Duma. Edom asks the watchman, what time of night? And the real question is, when is the morning? In other words, when will relief come? When will this time of darkness, this time of destruction, this time of not having any certainty or hope, when will this be over? When will morning come? And the answer that the watchman gives is incredibly unhelpful. His response can be taken multiple ways. But the primary ways to take it because of the unclearness of the Hebrew, it seems that in both of these ways might be meant. But the primary ways to read this would either be that morning will come, but the night is here, possibly with the implication of first. Like there is a night first, and then there will come morning. So basically this would be somebody asking a watchman, when will morning come? And the watchman says, well, the night's actually going to be longer than you think. But there will be morning eventually. So that could be one way to read it. What's, read what's going on in the Hebrew here. But then the other way to read it could be morning will come, but it's not going to last long and night is right behind it. So you should come back again during the next night and keep asking because this process will keep repeating. 
so there are two different primary ways to, ways to read it there. Either way, we know that from history, multiple times the Assyrian kings led campaigns into northern Arabia. This happened in 715 and 703. And Sennacherib conquered all the way down to Duma, specifically to this place. And we know that Edom was a vassal state of the Assyrian Empire during the times of Ahaz and Hezekiah. So Edom this whole time is a vassal state looking to Duma for news about Babylon, about all these alliances that are being formed, and asking the watchmen, when are we going to get some hope here? We've been a vassal state for a while. Are we going to get some hope from these alliances and all these things that are happening? And the watchman says, you might. It's not going to last long. Or the other way to read it would be, uh, not for a long time, but keep watching. So it's a call to faithfulness, a call to keep watching, a call to, if the night does follow the morning immediately, to the next night, keep asking. So again, there are multiple ways to read that. But when you combine the fact that the the watchman theme seems to connect this theme, because we saw that watchman wording in, in the first oracle. So these oracles seem to be connected. And I think what's going on, like I just mentioned, is that you have Edom looking to Duma for news about Babylon. But it's told, effectively, if you combine the two oracles, it's told that Babylon has fallen and Duma has fallen. There is night. And if you look to either one of these places for your light, for your hope, night is close behind. I think this fits well with the meaning of Duma as silence, because if you look into a word study on that silence, it oftentimes has to do with the silence of the grave, the silence of death, a place of no hope. Edom looks for hope, but they are told that there's yet more night. And then we get to the third oracle, starting in verse 13, the oracle concerning Arabia. The themes of judgment, night, and lack of hope bring us right into this oracle, There is a little debate about the title Arabia. This one's more clear. There's less disagreement about this one. But there's a possibility that the word Arabia there, how exactly it's written in the Hebrew, could maybe better be translated as night or wasteland. Um, That would fit the dark and gloomy theme of these oracles. Um, But if you follow the wording of the oracle, all of the places mentioned are in Arabia. So if nothing else, like the oracle does definitely concern and talk about Arabia, there might be a potentially purposeful added layer of the night um, wasteland kind of gloomy theme, because that would fit right into these oracles. And what we read in this oracle is that the the caravans and the people of the Dedanites, and you see this at the end of 13, oh, caravans of Dedanites, um, you lodge, going up to the line above, in the thickets of Arabia, you lodge. And then in 14, to the thirsty bring water, meet the fugitives with bread, O inhabitants of the land of Tima, for they have fled from the swords and from the drawn swords and from the bent bow and from the press of battle. So just like we had a refugee theme in Moab, the, the oracle to Moab last series, we now have another refugee theme in this oracle to Arabia. And in this one, the caravans and the people of Dedan fly and flee to the oasis city of Tima. Both of these places are in the region of Kedar, which is why all of a sudden in um, the next couple of verses in 16 and 17, it says, thus says the Lord, within a year, according to the years of a hired worker, which the phrase there, by the way, if you're a hired worker, like paid by the day, you're counting your days. So like it's meant to, meant to convey certainty. Within a year, all the glory of Kedar, and all of a sudden you're like, well, now, now we're talking about Kedar. Like the Dedan, the Dedan and Tima in the previous verses are in the region of Kedar. So that's what's going on with the wording there. All the glory of Kedar will come to an end, and the remainder of the archers of the mighty men of the sons of Kedar will be few. 
for the Lord, the God of Israel, has spoken. Again, both of these places being in the region of Kedar, and Kedar was a region that was known for a powerful group of northern Arabian tribes. But we're told that these northern tribes of Arabia will be crushed within a year and become refugees. In these three oracles of this chapter, then we see that Babylon, Arabia, and Edom are all shown to be tied to coming destruction and hopelessness. There might be a glimmer of hope, but it won't last long. I think that these three oracles all work together and were likely all given around the same time, either around 716 when Hezekiah started to rule on his own and was likely being given messengers from other nations about where your alliance is going to lie, or possibly around 704 with similar situation again. Um, But both of these times fit very well, and they both had alliances between these nations um, and alliances that were offered to Hezekiah, and both of these alliances were put down. So either way you read it, and either way you apply the timing of what's going on, and we'll actually see this again later, you can fit it in multiple places of history. Because you had alliances, Arabia being part of them, Babylon being part of them, Edom looking to join, um, having her communication gate or uh, roadways cut off pretty often. Um, you had a lot of these things happening. And then each of these times, you have the northern tribe of Arabia is invaded. So either way you, you read it, you could put this one-year time, time period in there. And then we come to the fourth oracle. If you think about all these alliances and all this historical situation that's happening— Hezekiah's doomed desire to join this alliance leads perfectly into the sarcastic title of this oracle. We are told that this oracle, at the beginning of 22, concerns the Valley of Vision. And we quickly find out that this is about Jerusalem and her severe lack of vision. So this is a purposely sarcastic title. From the names given, if you skip to the end of the oracle, from the names given in 15 to verse 25, and what we read about these men later in chapter 36. It seems likely that this oracle was given sometime before the siege of Jerusalem by Assyria. And we'll get to why in a couple minutes, but it's likely this was given before 701, which would put this oracle right in the time period of the other ones that I've been talking about. And the fate of these men serves as an intermediate fulfillment of the oracle. We've seen a lot of intermediate fulfillments throughout all of these oracles so far. This is the thing that keeps happening. God looks to the future and says, oh, by the way, you can trust me because I'm about to give you this short-term prophecy to prove that you can trust me for the longer-term prophecy. So the fate of these men serves as an intermediate fulfillment, but the content of 1 through 14 makes it difficult to tell what specific time period the first half of this oracle is talking about. The oracle is broken up into basically three different sections through verse 14, and then you have the last section, 15 to 25. The first section, which depending on how your Bible um, formats the stanzas and everything in Isaiah here, but the first section, 1 through 8a, so the first part of 8, and then your Bible probably switches to prose or paragraph form after that first part, um, and then skipping to 12 through 14, so the first And the third sections, which in most Bibles are going to be shown as like poetic stanzas, these seem to mirror each other in many ways with similar themes and wording. And they both seem to talk about the fall of Jerusalem to Babylon way in the future in 586. But this middle section here, this paragraph or um, more prose writing in 8b through 11, matches very closely, in fact almost verbatim, to 
preparations that we read that Hezekiah took before the Assyrian siege, and we read about this in Second Chronicles 32. So you seem to have like two different time periods being talked about. It seems most likely that the events of Isaiah's time and the later fall of Jerusalem to Babylon are both being discussed in a blended way, and that the point of the oracle is more a general truth than trying to align every line of the verses to one specific time in history. 1 through 8a and then 12 through 14 have many points of comparison, but both basically boil down to this question. Why are you partying when you ought to be weeping and repenting? Your destruction is coming and you refuse to turn back to God. He has taken away your covering. As we read in 8a, the first party has taken away the covering of Judah. That ends the first section. And then what ends the second section is your sin will not be atoned for. I love the irony, kind of dark irony at the end here when you read 13 and 14. Behold joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And then the Lord answers, surely this iniquity will not be atoned for you until you die. God directly answers the quote from the people. Notice how this partying, by the way, in the face of destruction, matches, if you look back to chapter 21, if you think about the the long-term reading of Babylon, how Babylon was partying on the eve of their destruction that we read in Daniel 5. And then you come over to chapter 22, talking about God's own people and their partying on the eve of their destruction. That comparison is not an accident. In fact, there are many points of comparison that I don't have time for right now between the two oracles about Babylon and Jerusalem, saying, in effect, you have become Babylon. Just like we saw in 1 through 5, how we talk about Sodom and Gomorrah, then all of a sudden, you, Sodom, you, Gomorrah, you have become these people that you say are the epitome of evil. You are Babylon is what we read in these verses here. There's purposeful comparisons that are happening. Even in the face of their destruction, the people refuse to turn back to God. Between these two sections, these the two poetic sections in 1 through 8 and then 12 through 14, we see in the second part of 8 through 11, we read of the preparations that Hezekiah and the people took in preparation for the siege. And again, we know that this comes from about 701. And there's, again, purposeful wording that is happening here. You have to slow down when you read Isaiah. But starting in 8, um, the, the prose section, in that day, you looked, looked, you looked to the weapons of the house of the Lord and you saw the breaches of the city and then skip down to 11, you made a reservoir between the two walls of the water of the old pool, but you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. You are looking and seeing all the preparations that you have to make. You're looking and seeing your own abilities, what you want to do, what you think you have to do, but you aren't looking and seeing God. He isn't even in the picture. There's purposeful mirroring wording happening here, making it clear the faults of the people. They have neglected and forgotten and rejected God. What is interesting is that in 2 Chronicles 32, we read that Hezekiah actually did turn to God at this time in 701, which is why God delivered the city. 
Isaiah does not mention this, and the fact that he does shows that he is pointing at a greater truth and pattern of the rejection of God by the leadership of people and their refusal to look to and return to him. I believe this is also why later in chapters 36 to 39, and we'll talk about this more at length when we get there, but we're going to see that the narrative does not follow chronological order in those chapters. The narrative in 39 closes with a failure of Hezekiah, even though that actually happened before the events of 36 to 37. I think the point being made here and then later in the narrative is that repentance, sadly, is the exception, not the rule of this time. Isaiah is purposefully ending and leaving out the notes of hope and leaving you with the rejection and the rebellion. This theme of self-reliance and rejection of God is reinforced yet again in verses 15 through 25. In these verses, Shebna, who is effectively the prime minister of Jerusalem, is called but a steward by God. Starting in 15, thus says the Lord God of hosts, come, go to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the household, and say to him, what have you to do here? And whom have you here? That you have cut out here a tomb for yourself, and you cut out a tomb on the height, and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock. Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently. Oh, you strong man, he will seize you firm. Sorry, he will seize firm hold on you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into the wide land. There you shall die and there shall your glorious chariots, you shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office and you will be pulled down from your station. And that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And you think, oh, oh, this is all going really well. And then you get to the end, and as you go through these next couple of verses, he's compared to a, te- a peg that the burdens and the responsibilities are being weighed or put on. And then at the end in 25, in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg, being Eliakim, that was fastened in a secure place, will give way, and it will be cut down and fall. And the load that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. So even the replacement that God sends will also fall. In these verses, again, Shebna, who is effectively the prime minister, he is the second highest position, likely, in Jerusalem. And God calls him a steward. And through the wording of the next couple of verses, says quite plainly that he is a very poor steward. It might be weird reading about this tomb writing here, what's going on. Basically, what is happening is that Shebna is trying to make a monument, a memorial to himself. He is building a very fancy tomb. And what is interesting is if you read verse 16, it says, what have you to do here? Whom have you here that you have cut out here? There is a purposeful repetition of the word here. The point being made is why are you here? You are supposed to be taking care of the people, not yourself. You're supposed to be a steward and all you're stewarding is yourself and your own name and your own reputation and your, your own legacy. You have failed at your job. That's why he's called a dishonor to his father's house. So Shebna is not where he is supposed to be. In 17 through 19, the promise of his demotion is put in terms of exile, destruction, and humiliation. We will see in chapter 36 that just as we read here, Shebna is demoted. And his job is given to Eliakim. But we also see that Shebna is still on staff. He is not whirled around and thrown into the wilderness, literally. 
He is still on staff as a secretary. I think this is because the language here, this exile language, is that just like the first half of the oracle blends the present and the future, I think so even what we're talking about with Shebna and Eliakim blends the present and the future. And that these two men are standing in or representing the people who will eventually be exiled for their failure. Eliakim will replace him and do well for a while, but he will also be cut down and fall. The story of Shebna and Eliakim mirrors the story of the people. Ahaz was a poor leader and was replaced by Hezekiah, and he did well for a while, but eventually turned away from the Lord. The Mount of Jerusalem, what's supposed to be a mount or mountain, now granted it's not the tallest one in the area, so like in geographically speaking you could kind of say valley, but it's still a purposeful play on where the Mount of Jerusalem has turned into a valley, and it has turned into a valley of a severe lack of vision is the point of this oracle. And then the second series of oracles ends in chapter 23 and closes with an oracle against Tyre. And just like the first series of oracles ended with a promise that Assyria, Egypt, and Israel will be be worshiping God together, so this series seems to end with a promise that even the wealth of Tyre will become surprisingly holy to the Lord. And you see that at the very end of the oracle. As with all of the oracles in this series, the timing of the oracle is a bit tricky, and it is very likely that this oracle both points to the near and far future, especially since some of the language, as you read this oracle here, this woe of Tyre, the wailing over it, some of this language is actually picked up and used basically verbatim in Revelation 18, where Tyre and Babylon are blended together into one final city that represents rebellion against God. So you see some of this wording against Tyre is used and picked up again in Revelation. Tyre was a major center for trade and commerce. Babylon had glory and strength, but Tyre had wealth. They sat on the eastern and the western ends of the Assyrian Empire and basically represented everything the world had to offer. Tyre also had a natural protection. It had a fortress city that was on an island just off the coast. In fact, later in history, Alexander the Great, to finally actually able to conquer the fortress, had to build a bridge that later silted over, and that's why there's actually no island there anymore. But like they were practically impregnable. Like it, was, it was very hard to conquer Tyre. They had a lot of reason to trust in themselves. They had their wealth, and they had their fortress city on the island. To Jerusalem, to I, or sorry, to, to the Jerusalem, that Isaiah is telling not to trust in herself and her own resources and the alliances that she is able to garner. Isaiah is telling, look to God. And he closes this series of oracles by prophesying to this city, to Jerusalem, looking to her own resources and says, Tyre can't even trust her own resources. You think you can trust yours? You think you can trust your strength and your resources? Even Tyre can't do that. To the Jerusalem who keeps looking to alliances to save her, Surely with Tyre being part of these conversations, God again promises that this won't work. We also read at the end of this oracle, we see in verses um, 15 through the end, in that day Tyre will be forgotten for 70 years, and then in verse 17, at the end of 70 years, the Lord will visit Tyre and she will return. We read of this 70 years that will end with the wealth of Tyre becoming holy to the Lord. Indeed, Tyre uh, Tyre was constantly being attacked and subdued, to various degrees, for the next 70 years from about the time that this oracle would have been given until about 630. And at that time, the new king, um, or the king at that time of Jerusalem was Josiah, and they actually had a trade relationship with Tyre, so some of the wealth of Tyre would be coming in and being used for the Lord's work. And then there was another time of 70 years when Tyre was destroyed by 
or not destroyed, totally, totally, but subdued by Babylon. And then it wasn't until 70 years later, with the rise of the Persian Empire, that they were brought back to more prominent status. And some of their wealth at that time, when Cyrus of Persia sent the people back, some of the wealth of Tyre was used for rebuilding the temple. So I think you have multiple fulfillments here, and I think that this oracle, just like the others, probably also points to the future reality. Just as some of the wording in this chapter is seen in Revelation 18 in the lament of the people of the world at the fall of Babylon, I think also this reversal, the wealth of Tyre being holy to the Lord, I think this is also purposely pointing forward to the fact that one day nations will turn to him. Just as we saw in the first series that Egypt and Assyria would one day turn to God, I think we have a purposeful ending here that even one day nations that rely on their wealth and use their wealth for anything except God one day, even people like that will turn to God and will be worshiping him and using their wealth for him. So this is the second series of oracles. Through these oracles, Isaiah likely speaking to Hezekiah at a time when he is looking to alliance with Babylon and other nations is saying again and again, you are looking to the wrong place for your security. You are supposed to be a mountain of vision, but you have turned yourself into a valley that lacks vision. All of these nations that you were looking to, all these alliances you are looking to, they will all fail. You think you can trust your own wisdom and your own resources? Even Tyre can't do that. Where you are looking for light and hope, you will only find darkness, wilderness, silence, night, and destruction, these repeated gloomy words throughout all of these oracles, for your vision is really blindness. You have lost your sight. The promise of God to Isaiah about people's reaction to his ministry is coming true right in front of his eyes. They have become like Babylon and like Tyre. But one day God will bring a judgment and a healing that will cause even those who had formerly placed their trust in themselves to place their trust in God. One day they will call on his name and use the resources that they had once placed their trust in and used selfishly for their own means. One day they will use those resources for God's purposes. They and everything they have will be, at the, the last part of this last oracle here, they will become holy to the Lord. What's interesting is that word is actually the same word, that phrase was on the forehead of the high priest, and we read it again of what's going to be on all of us in the New Jerusalem. So again, this purposeful looking to the, to the present and also the final future. So what does all this have to say to us? We are not the nation of Judah considering alliances with other nations against the Assyrian Empire. I don't think I have to defend that. We are not tempted to join the vision and power of Babylon or the wealth of Tyre, at least not the literal cities. We do not face God's promise of judgment in exile to Babylon for his rejection, or sorry, for our rejection of him. In fact, I think most of us would say that we would find ourselves more in the position of Isaiah, trying to be faithful to God as we see the world turning away from him. This theme of vision and perspective that we have seen throughout these oracles, though, is a needed reminder to us to ask ourselves if we are looking through God's eyes for our daily decisions or through the eyes of the world and our own sinful desires. Hezekiah surely had Isaiah repeatedly giving him God's word and telling him to look to God. And Hezekiah did. 
for a while. But then he let his pride and his wealth and his possessions and his power get to him. He turned his eye away from God. He did not, he did not stay grounded in the word of God. Today, we have not just the book of Isaiah, we have God's entire Bible, 66 books, repeatedly giving us God's word and telling us to look to him. Do we let Babylon and Tyre, the power, wealth, and pleasures of the world, do we let them blind our vision in our decisions? One of the easiest ways for us to examine ourselves in this way is to remember that we are told that the world will know that we are his disciples by our love. Do we let our desire to feel like we are in control, that we have a sense of power or that we are right, stop us from being loving and how we talk to or about others? Do we allow this to stop us from being loving, even when we disagree with somebody, even when we disagree with them maybe really strongly? Are we still able to disagree lovingly? Do we let these desires cause us to talk or act in angry, unloving ways with our spouse, our friends, our coworkers, our kids, or anybody? Do we let our need to feel secure in our money, stop us from acts of generosity and love that we really are able to do. We have talked a lot about military alliances these last few chapters, but if you go back to chapters 1 through 5, the reason for God's judgment on his people came down to their pride, their lack of love, and their rejection of him and his word. They were still doing the motions of worship, but they no longer had his heart. Babylon which represents power, control, and pride, and Tyre, which represents wealth and pleasures, these things are very much so alive and well today. And they are fights that we all face. They together, like we see them blended in, in, in Revelation, they together are a city that we constantly are tempted to build in our hearts. They are the two main roots of all kinds of evil that will pull us away from God and blind our vision. So each week I have tried to bring up a different aspect of what faith looks like. For this week, I'd say that faith is keeping our vision, our eyes, our heart set on God. Trusting that he is all we need and that what he has for us and what he has told us to do is best. Where we see a lack of love in our lives will likely reveal a part of our heart that is lacking faith and trust in what God has told us. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for these oracles. I thank you for the fact that you are always standing ready to forgive us, your people, that you do not mince words at times, telling us the foolishness of looking anywhere else besides you. I pray that each day in each, each decision that we face, that we would keep our eyes, our vision set on you and what you have told us, that, but that we would not be drawn away 
by the things of this world, by our own desires, by our own seeming wisdom and plans, by what we think will make us comfortable or secure, but that we will trust what you have for us and trust that the lifestyle that you call us to is best, even when at times it is hard. I pray all this in your name. Amen.